Parshat Terumah, uh, and we're going to start with a medrash. It's a beautiful medrash. It's a medrash, part of which you will certainly have heard, but we're going to go through it in some detail, and then we're going to see what the Shemi Shmuel has to say about this medrash. We know that Parshat Terumah begins the process that initiates the construction, the building of something called the Mishkan. Uh, later on, it became the Beit HaMikdash, essentially a sanctuary for God in this world. God is not in this world in the sense that he has reduced his presence to create the possibility of a physical world, of a material world. Materialism is in opposition to God's presence, Nevertheless, we can access God, okay? I, I'm not going to go into those details. We've given Shi'urim about that before. But in, in essence, the Mishkan is the, um, as it were, um, ever-present presence of God in our midst. So the ability of us to access God in a more direct way than just the ordinary thing. I mean, God is in this table. God is in this chair. God is in all of us. We have an Ashama. But to have access to God, a mishkan seems to be the kind of concentrated presence. The shekhinah resides in the mishkan, in the Beit HaMikdash, etc. That's the, just by way of background to the midrash that we're about to read. I've translated this particular midrash. I didn't have time yesterday to translate both of the midrashim into English. Um, I don't think. You know what? I, I say that, but I didn't even check. No, no, I didn't. So, uh, but the first Midrash I have actually translated into English. Let's look at that. So, the Pasuk says, at the beginning of Parshat Turumah, it's a word, the word Turumah means gift, right? V'yikhuli Turumah, God instructs Moshe, Moses, that the nation should bring gifts to Moshe, in order to enable the construction of a Mishkan, a sanctuary for God to reside in. And they shall bring me gifts. This is, the Pasuk is in um, Shemot, Perek Chafhei, Pasuk Bet. Okay, says the Medrash. I'm now reading the translation I put together. It's on page one of your source sheet. The source sheet is available online. Here it is written. You should recognize that pasuk. We say it in Davening. It's one of the psukim of Uvnucho Yomar. It's, uh, uh, it's in this particular pasuk, is in Proverbs, Mishlei, Perik Dalud, Pasuk Bet. For I have given you. A good portion, lekach. What does lekach mean, by the way? Generally speaking in Hebrew, food. We talk about food as lekach. In other words, I've given you something that you can, to be very crude, eat. That you can consume, that you can use. Natati lachem. Torati al Do not forsake my Torah. That's the pasuk. I know it sounds beautiful and we've got so many wonderful cantorial and uh, musical pieces based around this pasuk, we can all sing. I'm not going to ask any of you to sing, okay? But we could all sing this pasuk. Each of us has a tune that we associate with this particular pasuk in Mishle. Says the Midrash, in other words, 
Do not forsake the purchase that I gave you. Torati al ta'azavu, says the Midrash, al ta'azavu et ha-mekach shenatati lachem. We're going to come back to that, okay? There is a person, says the Midrash, who buys something, but their purchase has gold, but no silver. Or it has silver, but no gold. But the purchase I have, says God, has silver. The purchase I have sold you has silver. As it says, the Pasuk says, Imrot Hashem Amarot Torot Kesef Tsaruf. The statements of God are statements as pure as smelted silver. It's a Pasuk in Tehillim. And it has gold, as it says. What does the Pasuk say? What does that mean? More precious than gold, even huge amounts of fine gold. Then, says the Medrash, there are people who buy fields but not vineyards. Or they buy vineyards and not fields. But this purchase has both vineyards and fields, as it says, again a quotation, this one from Shir Hashirim, Shalachayich Pardes Rimonim. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. So you see that they are that it includes everything, vineyards and fields. Then you have someone who makes a purchase, and others looking at the purchase that he has made, do not know what that purchase is. They're looking at it. What is it that you have bought? But it makes no difference if they know or they don't know. As the Medrash says, the inebriation of the brewer is clear, and so you know what he's bought. If you see somebody pouring a, uh, out of a bottle into a cup, and he drinks, and he becomes very merry, you don't need to be told that that clear fluid in the bottle is not water, it's vodka, right? I mean, you don't need to be a Chabadska to know that. You just know that the fellow is very happy. Oh, one second, what did he drink? Was it water? Mm -mm. He wouldn't have been as happy as that if he was drinking water. In that instance, we know what he... In other words, you don't need to know what somebody's bought. You can see via their reaction what it is that they have purchased. The same is with the Torah. A person doesn't know what it is, except, besides for, the inebriation that Moshe had, that he took. And we know it says in the Pasuk, this is the Pasuk in Shemot, Perek Lamedalet, Pasuk Haftet, Umoshe lo yada ki karan or panav bedabro ito. What happened to Moshe when he was speaking words of Torah? His face shone, right? Some people pronounce that word shone. I'm not sure that's the correct pronunciation. His face shone, he was shining. Moshe Rabbeinu was shining. So people are looking at him. Uh, what exactly is it that you received from God? Was it some gefilte fish? Uh, you know, was it a corned beef sandwich? No, no, it must have been something really special. It must have been the Torah, why? You don't shine if you eat gefilte fish. I'm, listen, present company excluded. There may be people who shine when they eat gefilte fish. I don't know. 
but the but the bottom line is most likely you eat gefilte fish you didn't shine you study torah you got the light of torah you're going to shine there's something going to be changed about you something's going to be special that's what happened to moshe rabbeinu he got the purest um, form of torah that it is possible to get he received it directly from God. His face was shining. So we could tell what he bought, even though we didn't know exactly what it was. Continues the Medrash. And then, there are purchases where the one who sells them is sold along with them. This is the piece about the Mishkan. God said to Israel, I sell to you my Torah. And, as if such a thing could be, I I'm sold along with it, as it says, and they shall bring me gifts, v'yikhuli terumah. I am sold along together with the Torah. Says the Medrash, what is an analogy that we can use to help us understand what happened here between God and the Jewish nation? It's similar to a king who had just one daughter. Another king came and took her to be his wife. He got engaged. He came, right? Came along. And he was uh, together with this girl. He liked her. And he said, I'd like to get married to her. And he wanted to take her back to his country so that he could marry her. So what did the father say? It's his only daughter, the king. He said to the other king who wanted to take his daughter... My daughter who I have given you is my only one. I cannot bear to separate from her. But to tell you that you cannot take her is also impossible since she is now your wife. I, you got engaged to her. You want to marry her. You want to take her home. That's perfectly reasonable. Rather, do me this favor, says the father. Everywhere you go, make me a small room so that I can live with you. For I cannot bear to be without my daughter. So said God to Israel. It's a beautiful medrash, isn't it? I have given you the Torah. I cannot bear to be separated from her, from my Torah, from my precious only daughter. However, to tell you not to take her is also impossible. I've given it to you. Har Sinai. Here's the Torah. But, but I can't be separated from her. So we're in a bit of a fix. What am I going to do? Rather, says God, everywhere you go, make me one house so that I can live within it. And that's what it means when it says, make me a sanctuary. God is telling you that the Torah is very precious. How is he telling, by the way, it's a great branding exercise, right? I give you the Torah, but really I don't want to give it to you. If I was a salesman, what do I say when I'm selling something? I, I'd like to, I don't really want to sell you this because I really want to keep it. However, okay, I'm going to sell it to you. What can I do? I, 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 need, I need to earn the money, whatever it is. I'm going to sell it to you, but, but I really I can't sell it to you. It's a great sales technique, isn't it? Because it gives value to the object that is being sold. Do you see what, what's happening here? God is saying to the Jewish nation, I'm giving you the Torah. 
but the Torah is really special. If I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you the Torah and then I'm going to go, I'm so happy I make the sale, now I'm going to use the money, I'm going to go on holiday to Hawaii. That's, that's not what God says. God says, I've sold it to you, but I don't want to be away from it. The Torah is so special that wherever it goes, I go. How's that possible? I will, you will create a Mikdash and I will reside in that Mikdash. I want to be close to where the action is. I want to be close to the Torah. It's a beautiful Midrash. It's a beautiful Midrash. The Midrash is telling you the Torah is so special that God cannot let go. Let's look, look at page two in your source sheet. We see the Shemish Shmuel, the Sochachover, has an interesting insight into this Midrash. If you look back at the Medrash, Ma Hosifa Medrash le Faresh Hakatuv Kilekartov Natati Lachem Torati Alta Azovu. You remember the Pasuk said, the Pasuk we quoted from Mishle said, I've given you a beautiful thing, a portion, a wonderful portion. Do not abandon my Torah. How does the Medrash continue? Alta Azovu et Amekach Shenatati Lachem. Do not abandon the portion, the wonderful thing that I have given you. One second. We just said that in the Pasuk. What is the Midrash adding? Halo zemufurash bikra. It's explicit in the Pasuk. You don't need the Midrash to repeat to you something that the Pasuk already has said. Gam. Mahu kesef zahav. Sadot ukramim. What are the four items that are mentioned that are identified in the Pasuk, in the Midrash, regarding this concept about the Torah being so special. Zahav, gold. Kesef, silver. Sadot, fields. Kramim, vineyards. Halo, muvan lakol Torah einena davar gashmi. Shishayach, hitchalkut elu. One second. What's the Torah? Is the Torah something that we can define by analogizing it to something material? No. The Torah is something spiritual. It's something over and above anything that we uh, um, can discern in the physical world. In which case, why is the Midrash identifying the Torah, somehow correlating it to Zahav, Kesef, Sadot and Kramim? Why? The Torah is the Torah. By the way, Sadot are Sadot, you, fields. You go out and you see a beautiful field. It's a wonderful thing. It's got nothing to do with Torah. Kramim. Has anyone been to a vineyard? Have you been to Napa Valley recently? I was there last year. Fascinating. You look, you see endless vineyards. What has it got to do with Torah? Nothing. It's a wonderful thing. But it's Kramim. It's vineyards. Zahav. You've seen gold? Kesef. Have you seen silver? It's got nothing to do with gold or silver. It's got nothing to do with Torah. It's to do with gold and silver. So why is the Midrash using these material analogies to somehow help us understand what the Torah is about? That's the question that the Shemishmol asks. Everybody understands that the Torah isn't a physical thing. 
that you can define them in these separate or different ways. How have we been, um, how has our understanding of the Torah been enhanced by using these analogies? And in fact, much of the rest of the Midrash needs to be better understood. The near E. Dinea Torah Nikret Lekachtov. Let's so the Shemishmol wants to focus on the fact that the Torah, how is the Torah referred to in this Midrash? Lekachtov. You know, when I was a kid growing up, when you went to a kiddish, they used to say Lekach and Bromfen. You remember that? You know what Lekach was? Cake. Good cake, right? Lekach is cake. The, the, the Lekach, in Yidd, it's a Yiddish word. Lekach is cake. Bronfen, by the way, is vodka or some alcoholic beverage. We used to go to Kiddish. That's what they had. Somebody had somebody had a bar mitzvah. Somebody had, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, Shalom Zocher. Lekach and Bronfen. That's what we had. Lekach, what are you talking about? Says, a Torah is called Lekach Tov? You know, that's that's how you're referring to it. What does it mean? matantov, a good gift. Think about it. What what are we talking? I've given you a good. Who appreciates the cake? The giver or the taker? The taker, right? I'm going to eat a nice piece of lekach. Then I'm the taker. I'm eating. I'm eating the cake, but. But this pasuk is said from the uh, perspective of the giver. Ki lekach tov natati lachem. This lekach I have given to you, says God. Torati alta azovu. What are you talking about? It should say, ki matan tov natati lachem. I gave you a nice gift. The word matan means I gave you a giving thing. The way you have it is something else completely. So what does it mean? Shemitzad hanoten yudstak yoter halashon matan tov. It would have made more sense for the pasuk to reflect the perspective of the giver, not the taker. Shelashon lekach humipat hamekabel. The word lekach is from the perspective of the taker, of the one who receives. The kivan shakadosh baruch hu omer haya lo lomar matantov. And seeing as it is God who is the one who is, as it were, being quoted in this pasuk, it would have made more sense to use the word matan, not the word lekach. Lekach is the perspective of the receiver. Matan is the perspective of the one who's speaking in this pasuk. God, who is the giver. Ach, yesh lomar, says the Shem Shmuel. I'll tell you how you can understand it. Al pi ma shehigid kva kedushat zekeni adoneinu moreinu verabeinu hagadol zechet tzadik vekadosh livracha mikotsk. His grandfather was the Kotzka Rebbe. He's quoting his grandfather, the Kotzka Rebbe. Lama anu omrim ba'atzeret zaman matan toratenu how do we refer to Shavuot? We call it Atzeret, right? It's a, it's a great Yom Tov. Do we say Zman Matan Torah Tenu or Zman Kabbalat Torah Tenu? 
Matan. Matan Toratenu. Why? Surely it should be the time that we receive the Torah. What do we call the Ma'amad Har Sinai? Kabbalat HaTorah, receiving the Torah. So Shavuos should be, should be referred to as Man Kabbalat Toratenu, when we receive the Torah. Why is it called Matan Toratenu? Says the Shem Shmuel, Vatshuvahi. Do you know what the answer is? Mipnei Sherak Hanatina Haita Az. Only the giving was at that moment in time. Receiving the Torah is an ongoing process. It's not something that was limited to that moment in history. At any moment that a person is studying Torah, he is receiving the Torah. If it's only about Shavuot, I'll tell you what, you know, how many birthdays do you have every year? Was that wonderful? It was that wonderful scene in Alice in Wonderland, right? A very merry unbirthday to you, right? Do you remember that? What's a very merry unbirthday? Because a birthday only happens once a year, but your unbirthday happens the 364 other days of the year. Surely we should celebrate every day. Okay, so your birthday you'll celebrate because it's your birthday, but every other day is your unbirthday. How many times did we receive the Torah? We received on Shavuos. What happens if we celebrate um, the, the gift of the Torah on Shavuot? What happens on the day after Shavuot? I'm doing other stuff. It's got nothing to do with the Torah. Shavuot is the anniversary of receiving the Torah. Actually, if that's the way you celebrate receiving the Torah, you've not received the Torah. Because the day after Shavuot is also receiving the Torah. What about the day afterwards? It's also receiving the Torah. Many years ago, I had a story from Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. Beautiful story. I don't know if he ever said it on, on a record, but I heard this story from him directly. He was in Lakewood Yeshiva. He studied in Lakewood between 1948 and 1955. Okay, it's a long time ago. He was one of the first Bachrim in Lakewood Yeshiva. And Rabbi Aaron Kotler, who was a bit of a remote figure, who was a great rabbi, used to give a shir, but he had great expectations of the Bochrim in the yeshiva because they were, as he saw it, the Mitsuyanim. These were the premier Torah scholars of the next generation. And I don't know how many there were. There were 20, 30, 40. There weren't many Bochrim in the yeshiva. Came to Shavuos. What do we do on Shavuos? What is our custom? We study the whole night for the first night of Shavuot. Rabbi Kotler never came into the base Medrash the whole night. They daven Shachris in the morning, he joined them for Shachris, and that was it. So they decided among themselves, they're also going to learn Torah the second night of Shavuot. So the whole night, they, I guess they slept a bit in the afternoon, the whole night of the second night of Shavuot, this is in Lakewood Yeshiva, I don't know if it was in the late 40s or early 50s, they studied the whole night. Rabbi Kotler, nothing, no reaction. So they had a discussion among themselves, it's now the second day of Shavuot, they had a discussion among themselves, they decided, you know what, the night after Shavuot, we're also going to learn all night. Listen, we're sleeping in the afternoon, it's Yom Tov, right? They slept a bit in the afternoon, 
And the night after Shavuot, it's now Matzoi Shavuot, they studied all night together in the Bes Medrash. 30, 40 of them, however many there were. Rabbi Aaron Cutler came in and was talking to them in learning. Why? So Shlomo Kalbach told me that this whole, the whole thing was that they realized that when you're doing just what you're doing because you have to do it, okay, I mean, you have to do it. I mean, we expected to study all night on Shavuos. But if you're studying on Matzoi Shavuos, then it means it's a real Kabbalat HaTorah. Then it means you appreciate the value of Torah. You appreciate what it means. I'm able to study Torah. What, I could, what could I do now? I could go out. I could have a good time with my friends. No, no. I'm going to the base Medrash. I'm going to study Torah. Baron Kotler was very happy because he realized that his yeshiva was going to have a meaningful impact, not just on the boys who were studying there, but on the United States of America because these boys understood the value of Torah. That's, the, that's what the Shem Mishmul is saying here. If it's just about Matan Torah, then it's all about Shavuos, and the moment Shavuos is over, Matan Torah is over. If it is about Kabbalat HaTorah, then it's not just about, about the, the gift of the Torah, it's about receiving, constantly receiving. Your receiver is constantly open. You're constantly in, interested in the Torah. And it's self-evident that if you put in front of someone all the wonderful foods of the world, you sit him at a banquet. It's the most beautiful banquet. It's a smorgasbord to end all smorgasbords. I had a friend in yeshiva, and we used to go to, the, in those days, the Plaza Hotel, I think it's called something else now, in Jerusalem, they used to have an all-you-can-eat Shabbos lunch buffet. Do you, do you remember that? The Shabbos lunch buffet, I think in those days it was $35. I think it's gone up. Anyway, we saved up from our pocket money that we got from our dads, and we went to the Shabbos lunch buffet at the Plaza Hotel. The problem was they gave very small plates. Uh, we didn't like the plates. And because you constantly had to get up and go and get more stuff from the buffet. So what we did was, is rather than having to get up from our table, wherever it was, far away from the buffet, and walk backwards and forwards, what we did was, is we took our chairs and we sat the chairs next to the buffet table and just moved our chairs along the tables because we want, listen, we paid the money. It was all you can eat. They couldn't throw you out. I can't tell you if they did throw us out, they didn't throw us out. And we put our chairs, you put food in front of a person. You can say you can eat as much as you like. You can eat whatever, all you can eat buffet. That's the, you've ever heard of that? Yeah. An all you can eat buffet. That's what he's talking about. What, what happens then? You put somebody in that situation, all you can eat buffet. But he's not eating anything. I'm not going to eat. What happens then? What's going to happen? He's going to die of hunger. You can be surrounded by food and die of hunger. Do you know what Matan Torah is? 
It's an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord of the best possible food, spiritual food, that could exist. And at every moment that he takes, he eats from the smorgasbord, from the buffet, he will benefit from it and he will be sustained. The nutrition will keep him going. That's the idea of the Torah. But however, if he doesn't, it doesn't matter that the Torah is there. The Torah is there. You're not eating from it. The Shmugud board is there, but you're not able to eat from it, or you don't want to eat from it, then it makes no difference that the food is there. You're not going to be sustained by food that you don't put into your mouth and that doesn't go through your digestive system. Do you know what Shavuos is about? It's about the Shmugud board. There you are. The smorgasbord, beautiful range of food, of spiritual food called matan Torah. Bezeh matan Torah. Aval ha-kabalah hi bechol et shehu mitparnes mimena. You know what kabalata Torah is? It wouldn't be right to call Shavuot zman kabalata Torah because that's up to you. Are you going to take your plate or your chair and sit next to the buffet table and eat from all the food that's available? That's up to you. That's got nothing to do with the moment in time. That's up to you. And by the way, it's got nothing to do with Shavuos. You could do it the next day. You could do it Matzoi Shavuos and learn all night. You could do it every day of the year. Kabbalat Torah is not limited to Shavuot. The imit atzel milit parnes mimena en lo klum. However, just because the Torah exists, if you refuse to benefit from it, You'll have no benefit from it. You'll have nothing. Now we understand why the Torah in that pasuk is called lekach tov. What does the word lekach mean? What's the root of the word lekach? Lekach, to take. You have taken it. Not that it was given to you. You have actually taken it. It's because you've received it that it becomes Torah that is a benefit to you. If you don't accept it, it's as if you've had nothing. And now we can understand what the Medrash is saying. Somebody buys a product and it has silver. It has gold. There's different aspects of the Torah. You buy something, it has everything. But what do you take from it? What is Zahav? Zahav is reminiscent of Yir'ah. Of, of the awe, of the fear of God. Kesef ahava, but what's silver? Silver is a representation of love. Vezehu bemidot. These are different characteristic aspects of your reaction, of your way of appreciating, of absorbing, of learning, of studying, of observing the Torah. Vesadot hu eretz. What is fields? Fields is land. What comes out of the land? Bread. What is bread? Bread is, is, uh, is aligned with wisdom. We know that Gemara Chazal tell us that a child cannot utter and appreciate uh, 
his father and say the word daddy until such time as he's eaten bread. Somehow eating bread that comes out of the land is what's going to, uh, is going to initiate the intellectual process that will help a child understand what it means to have a father. Ukramim hubina. Do you know what kramim are? Vineyards, they are wisdom, understanding. Sharesh hayayin, which is the root of wine, or the wine is the root of it. Kiyadua, as we know, v'zeb b'mushkalot. V'hinei, en b'koach ha'adam, sh'yeh lo kol ha'bekinot b'pam achat yachtav k'muvan. We know that no person can have at any one time every level of understanding and appreciation and intellectual capacity that um, is expected of any person. We, we have emotions, we have other things that distract us. Sometimes we're focused on one thing, sometimes we're focused on, an, on, a, on another. <laughs> Uh, you know what Matan Torah is? Here it is. Here's the smorgasbord. Sometimes you want to have the entree at the smorgasbord, at the buffet. Sometimes you want to have the dessert. Sometimes you want to have the starter. There's different tables that you can go to, right? You could go here and eat that food, and then you can rest for a bit, and then you go to eat the... You can't eat it all at once. So you, nobody eats ice cream and steak together, unless you're really weird, right? I mean... The point is that there's different things that are you're attracted to or that you're going to want at different moments. So you might say, "Nimtza im If at some moment the relationship you want to have with God is the one of awe, that is appropriate at that moment. You might say, "Ba bechinat and sometimes you want it to be love. Sometimes the relationship you want with God is one of love, not one of awe. That's not the one that's attractive to you. Sometimes it's knowledge. Sometimes it's wisdom. There's different aspects of a person's personality. We're multifaceted, but it's all there in the smorgasbord. It's all there on the buffet table. That's why it's called matantara. Everything is there for you if you want it. You just have to come pick it up off the buffet table. Everything is laid out for you on the table in front of you. And whatever it is that you need in order to sustain your Torah dedication, that is what you should pick up at the moment that you're attracted to it. Don't imagine that this is a one-dimensional, one-faceted um, source of inspiration. It's multifaceted. There's everything there, and you can find everything within it. That explains the medrash that we began with in today's share. Let's look at the third source, another medrash. Shmois Rabba. Dovar acher. sakroshim. Okay. Should make the crossing. Maxiv lamala. What does it say in Perek Chafei Posuk Gimel? V'zoisa truma shetikhu meitam zohav v'chesav v'nechoshes. What should you take in order to build the Mishkan? Take gold, silver, and copper. Zahav, says the Medrash, zu bavel. That's bavel. Babylon. Shenemar. He gives a posuk to prove it. The kesef zu madai. 
What is Kesef, silver? That's media, the Medes. Shenemar gives a pasuk in Daniel to prove it. Nechoshet, nechoshes, zu yovon. Nechoshes, copper, bronze. That is yovon, Greece. Shenemar gives a pasuk also from Daniel to prove it. Avo barzel, inksivkan. What is the one metal that is not included in the metals that you need to give in order to, get, to uh, build the Mishkan? Iron. Nechoshet. Why not? Lo b'amikdash v'lo b'amishkan. Not mentioned ever in the sanctuary of Jerusalem, nor in the Mishkan. Lama shenirshal bog edom. What is the correlation between Barazel and another nation? We just had... Uh, Bovel, Modai, and, and Yovon, but the one which correlates with Nechoshet, with, sorry, with Barazel, is Edom. What's Edom? Edom is considered Rome, Esau. Shechriva Beit HaMikdash, they destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. Not appropriate to include Barazel in the Beit HaMikdash. From every nation, says the Midrash, God will accept gifts in the future, in the ultimate moment at the end of history, the end of days, besides for Edom, besides for Rome. In other words, Zahav, Kesev, Nechoshet, the, um, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks will be able to give gifts at the end of days, the end of time, but not the Romans. Clear? Yeah, th- it and it makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. I mean, I know. I, it makes, it makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. If you're going to say that Bovel destroyed the Beis HaMikdosh, we shouldn't accept anything from them. If you're going to say that we can accept something from them, we should be able to accept something from Edoim as well. In other words, what's the differentiation between Edoim and Bovel? What's the differentiation between Yovon and, and Edoim? There's no differentiation. If the nations of the world that tried to destroy the Jewish nation and actually achieved certain levels of destruction are excluded, they're excluded. If they're not excluded, they're not excluded. You can't have it both ways. That's what the Shemi Shmuel is going to talk about now. We didn't take Barzel into the base of before it was destroyed. So you can't say we're not taking it because you destroyed it. So let, let, let's... let n- Correct. So what, what, is it, what is it that Barzel represents... And why would Edom be excluded? Why are we ident- identifying Barzal with Edom in order to project that at the end of days we're not going to include Edom? But by the way, Barzal is Barzal, it's iron. We don't have it in the base of Mikdosh, and it doesn't have to have any meaning. Okay? It's not important for. Right. I understand. We, we, we're trying. We, this is called Midrash, right? right? We're trying to to create meaning out of something that doesn't necessarily need meaning. It could be, by the way, that they just didn't have any iron in the midbar. It could be that they just didn't like iron because it was a very common metal. But in which case, it's got nothing to do with Edoim. Okay, so the Medrash has associated it with Edoim. If it's associated it with Edoim, we need to understand why Edoim is no good and why Bavel is good. 
Let's look at what the, the Shem Mishmur says, and with this we will end our share. B'medrash, v'zoi satruma ashe tikhu me'itam, zohav v'chesef v'nechoyshes, zohav zubavel, etc. Just quotes the medrash. Look at the second line, the end of the second line. Medrash Tanchuma. And now that was Medrash Rabbah that we just quoted. The Medrash Tanchuma says exactly the same thing, more or less, that Bovel, Modai, and Yovon are associated with Zohav Kesav and Nechoshes. What's the you know what Oyas Elim Odamim are? They are the skins, the hides of the Elim Ma'odamim that were used to cover the Mishkan. Keneged Malchus Edoim. They are associated, correlated with the kingdom of Rome. Shenema, the Roman Empire. Shenema, the Yotza Harishon, the Yetzer Harishon Admoni. When Esau came out, what was he? He was red, he was ruddy. And therefore, there's kind of a literary association here, that they were reddish, and Odom was ruddy, and therefore, Edoim and the Oros Elim are the same thing, and we associate Edoim with the Oros Elim. So forget now whether or not we use iron because it is weapons or isn't weapons. We have two Medrashim here that are in dispute with each other, that contradict each other. The first Medrash says Edoim is excluded from any involvement with the Beis HaMikdosh. The second Medrash says, no, we don't exclude Edoim, they're the Elim Odomim. So which one is it? Is Edoim Barzel or is Edoim Oros Elim Odomim? You can't have it both ways. The Tanchuma seems to in completely contradict the Rabbah. You got the question? That's the question of the Shemishmuel. The Nireli Lefarish Ba'ifen Shiyah Koldivrecha Chomin Kayomim. Says the Shemishmuel, I can find an explanation which will reconcile all the words of the great rabbis. Because the fact is, and this is what I hinted at a moment ago, what exactly is the reference point of the four kingdoms of Bovel, Modai, Yovon, and Edoim with the Mishkan. Who cares? I know that we're always looking for associations. I mean, that's classic Chazal. We're always looking for some type of correlation between this and that and to somehow learn a lesson from it. But why? Why do we need to associate the, the four marauding nations of ancient times with the creation of the Mishkan? So this, we're going back to the initial psukim of the creation narrative in Parshas Bereshis. The world was soyu vavoyu. What is soyu? Zemalchus bovel. What is voyu? Malchus modai. What is choyshech? Darkness? Malchus yovon. What is tahoim? Another uh, time, the, the depths, right? The Malchus Edoim. So we have in the creation narrative also four associative words for um, Bovel, Modai, and Yovon, and Edoim. The Ruach Elohim, that's a nice one, right? The Ruach Elohim is the next one. What's Ruach Elohim? Spirit of God. Ze Melech HaMashiach. 
the end of days, the Messiah is going to come. So we see that all of these things were already hinted at at the very beginning of history. The earliest moments of history is recorded in the Torah. We have an association with the four nations that we've already mentioned and the ultimate moment, messianic redemption. Similarly, the four the rivers that came into the Garden of Eden are also associated with the four um, uh, nations that we've already mentioned. The Af, look at page three. We know that had plan A worked, you've heard me speak about plan A before, right? Had plan A worked, there would have never been the concept of sin in the world. Had Adam not sinned, there would be no sin. Which means that the very ultimate um, source of Edom actually was a source of sacredness, of holiness. Edom, even Rome, even the most sinful nation in history, is considered to have its roots and the very origin of, it, of creation in Kedusha. It's only when sin emerged into the world, they embraced it, I guess completely and utterly, and they became, became the epitome of sin in the world, but it's only because sin was created. Had Adam not sinned, they wouldn't have become sinful. Until they become the, the um, epitome of opposition to God's presence on this world. If you want to, if, you, if you're looking for, an, for the standard bearers, for the poster child of anti-God, look at Edoim. How is that possible? That's what they are. But it's only possible because Adam sinned. That initial sin created the possibility for their lack of Kedusha that ultimately resulted in what Edoim became. What is the Mishkan? The Mishkan is a small version of the creation that initially um, uh, formulated the world. Many Midrashim talked about, have talked about it and we've discussed it before in Shi'urim. The Mishkan is like a, a, a small version of the ultimate creation. And therefore, as the Mishkan was created, in the same way as in the creation narrative, we have references to those four nations, we have references in the creation of the Mishkan. Remember the four nations, both in the wording of the Psukim and in the four rivers. So we have the Mishkan in its Formation has reference to those four nations. What is the concept of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary, of sanctity in this world, is to attract all those negative forces that exist, the anti-God forces in the world, into what, uh, underneath the umbrella of God. That is the concept of the Mishkan. 
And that's why we have it, so that we can, as it were, ultimately we're going to see that all the nations of the world will travel up towards a Temple Mount in order to become a part of God's plan. But at the moment, that's not the case. That's the way it will be at the end of time. The Pasuk says, at that moment in history, I will turn around all the nations with a safabura, with clear speech, to call them all in the name of God. That's what Tzfania says. And this is in Yeshaya. And many nations um, will go and they will say, Let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob. We will learn from his ways. And we will go in his ways. Because from Zion, the Torah goes out and the word of God goes from Jerusalem. Ultimately, at the end of days, everybody will realize the truth. We know that the impurities that exist in the world will at that time be eradicated and the entire world will return to its roots. And at their roots, we know that everything is sanctity and holiness. Let's talk about the three initial. So first we have Babel, then we have Madai, and then we have Yavan. Those first three, Shahem, Ramaz, Gamal, Shafan, Arnevet. We know, and it's a shame we don't have Rabbi Slifkin here. He would love this. They are compared in Midrashim to the camel, to the rabbit, and to the hare. But Rabbi Slifkin would say the hyrax. Why are they considered kind of quasi-kosher, so that they might fool people because they chew the cud. They are considered animals that chew the cud, but they don't have split hooves. But their sign of, of kosherness is uh, internal. They chew the cud. Because they don't have split hooves. We know that these three have within them a holy source, a holy spark, a holy uh, sensitivity. But externally, they are impure, they are bad. But at the end of time, that will be much easier to change them because externally they are bad, but internally they are good. So those three animals, but by reference, those three nations will be far easy to transform into something holy because it's only internal um, that they are um, that they are bad, but externally they are they are fine. That is why 
the, these three metals, gold, silver and copper and bronze, can be acceptable for building the internal parts of the Mishkan. Aval Edom. What about Edom? It's the actual opposite. There, um, their bad signs are not like the rabbit and the hyrax hair and the camel, where it's the external signs that are bad, but the internally they're good. There, internally they are good. Um, they're internally they are bad, but externally they are good. Like the pig, they are compared to the chazir, where the where the animal has split hooves, but internally it is not correct. Its holiness is purely external. By the way, there's many chazals that talk about Rome and say externally how wonderful Rome appeared, but internally how rotten it was. Internally, everything is negative. That's why there is no such thing as a remnant that will survive from the house of Esav. Once their internal evil is exposed, there won't be any room for them in the ultimate realization of God's prophecy, the Messianic era. Arcane, and therefore, We cannot accept Rome and what it represents for the Mishkan. Barazel. It's Rome. It's a pig. We can't accept that in the Mishkan. It's not possible because externally we cannot possibly. Internally they're rotten. It doesn't matter what they are externally. It doesn't matter that they look okay. Internally they are rotten to the core. But however, what do they have? They still have the external part which is good. This is a real Hasidic Torah. This is a real Hasidic Torah. This is the Shem Mishmah. He says, okay, you've just written them off because internally they're bad. What are you talking about? Externally they look fine. So why would you dismiss them? Why would you disregard them? Why would you marginalize them? They have something good. It's external, albeit it's external, but at least it's there. We know that having a good exterior is a good thing because it protects the fruit. Okay, right now the klipa is surrounding something which is negative. But eventually, the end of days, that negative force will be, ex- um, will be exterminated. It won't be there anymore. It will be gone. So now that external part, which is there only to protect the Tumah, is left on its own and it will be Kedusha, it will be holiness. We have... Um, we have 
a sign for that. We have something which indicates that because we have the idea there's some fruit. When you eat an apple, do you, do you always peel the apple? No, you can eat the apple with its, with its skin. So you have something which is good on the outside, protecting something which is good on the inside. We have the concept of a klipa outside a pre, which is good. This tells us that sometimes the external part, even if it's there to protect something, is also in and of itself something holy. And in the ultimate time, at the end of days, kulam yihyu rak mitzadek dusha. The entire thing will be kedusha. Vachen lo pligya midrashim. And therefore, these two midrashim are not, in fact, in dispute with each other. The midrash rabbah in the rabbah myri mashinitz kabel legufa mishkan shu kesev azavan choshet. When we're talking about building the mishkan, then. And later on, we were talking about accepting only something which internally is good, and therefore Edom, we know internally, is rotten. That's why we said that iron isn't acceptable, because iron is a representation of Edom, which in and of itself intrinsically is bad. What is the Orot Elim Edamim? That's the external cover of the Mishkan. It covers the Mishkan like a skin on, on a fruit. That's on the outside. That is acceptable for Edom. That is a sign of the way things will be. Ultimately, because ultimately that external side of Edom will be acceptable and somehow we will be able to morph that into something which is sanctified just as the way it was in its original form when God created the world at the ultimate moment of messianic redemption. That root of Edom will come back into force. We'll leave it here.